Melinda. Hi, Rachel Wilson. Hey, everybody. <laughs> happy, happy day to you and welcome to the OC Bitches. Today's a very, very special day because we are celebrating Christmaca. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm almost um, speechless because this is one of the most exciting, most iconic episodes ever. And I brought my um, ugly Christmas sweaters, but it's a little warm. It's summertime right now. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to put it on because I don't want to be schwitzing. While uh, we're make, it a, make it a decoration. I have my uh, Christmas pajama attire that matches my daughter, but I just, it's dinosaurs oh. and Christmas. <laughs> yes. But I went into my daughter's closet to find this as well. An ugly Christmas <laughs> sweater. That's awesome. Yes. So the best Christmaca ever episode 13 of the first season is what we're covering. And I have just been counting the days till we get to this one. Mm-hmm. Um, one of you, like you said, one of the more iconic, I think episodes and Christmaca kind of took everyone by storm. <laughs> Oh my gosh, there's so many iconic moments. And I think we should get right to it because our special guest is going to just give you all so many behind the scenes um, information that this this is what this podcast is all about. So let's get to it, right? Hi guys. Hi. Hi. How are you? you How are you? Look at your shirt. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, for for our listeners, it's a t-shirt with um, Stephanie's face and Josh. No, it's Sandy Sandy and Kirsten. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you and Josh have become Sandy and Kirsten. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's hysterical. That's what it looked like for me. So my eyesight's going, Stephanie. (laughs) Stephanie Savage is with us, everyone. I know we're just saying, we just like jumped into it, but we're just super excited that you're here, Steph. And we are going to let everybody know. Thanks so much for having me. Oh my gosh, people, we have such a very special day today. Not only are we discussing, like we said before, one of the most iconic episodes of the OC, episode 13, the best Christmaca ever, but we get to discuss this with a very special lady, executive producer, screenwriter, showrunner, Stephanie Savage. Stephanie is a wonder woman of TV and film with a prolific resume of some of your favorite shows. Her talents have touched Charlie's Angels, The OC, Gossip Girl, Heart of Dixie, Dynasty, Runaways, Nancy Drew, Looking for Alaska, and again, the newest Gossip Girl. And um, most of this has also been brought to you guys by her partnership with Josh Schwartz and their production company, Fake Empire. Welcome, Stephanie. That was just a little bit of what I could have said about you. Yes, we are so thrilled that you're here and you definitely will know more than anyone else. So (laughs) (laughs) we look forward to that. And congrats on the premiere of the new Gossip Girl. Thank you. Yeah, it was so back yesterday. So cool. I loved everything uh, on the red carpet. I mean, they're killing it. It was so cool. Very, very exciting. Yes. Can't wait to watch it. So, Stephanie, normally just we love to start at the beginning, but I have to ask this first question. Was this script your first writing credit? Do you feel like it's your favorite firstborn? And are you still as proud of it and in love with it as we all are? Oh, um, answer, yes. So I uh, met Josh when I was working uh, at Wonderland with McGee. And I was an executive, uh, a development executive and production executive. Um, McGee and I had done one show uh, previously at Warner Brothers, and we had gotten an overall deal there. 
And then I was very shocked when they called to say like, what are you developing this year? Because coming from the feature world, I was like, what are you talking about? We just made a show. Like now we have to make another <laughs> show. Um, and realize that in TV, you make shows every year. So um, we had to develop something uh, for them. And McGee was actually from Orange County. And I thought that that was a really interesting world because it was such a mashup of like, you have the music scene at the time and, you know, Gwen Stefani and Sublime and you had surf and skate culture and beach, but also you had like Republican values and country clubs and gated communities and McMansions and kind of like, how did those two things combine? So it felt like an interesting world. And that was something that I was pitching to writers as an area, which just meant talking to having people come in, have a conversation. What are you interested in? And in that world, the sh a show really could have been anything. It could have been, you know, beach cops, or it could have been like <laughs> a saucy soap about real estate agents. Like it could have been anything. Um, mm -hmm. And Josh came in, who I had never met before. I'd liked his writing sample and was like, I'll, I'll meet with this guy. And um, he pitched the, he really locked into the idea of doing a teen soap, um, which was a genre that was very dear to my heart, not necessarily something that McGee and I had talked about doing, but I was a huge 90210 original show fan. Um, and there wasn't anything on. Uh, Dawson's Creek had gone off the air. 90210 had been off the air for a while. And it felt like it was really time um, to do something like that. And so Josh and I started working together on uh, this, uh, this pitch and then eventually the script. And then all the show got ordered and all the craziness that you guys have already been talking about and kind of Josh's journey and uh, the incredible experience that was shooting the pilot, going directly into a series order, staying basically in continuous production so we could be on in the summer. Um, and then he, over the course of that, he was like, you kind of seem like a writer, like you don't really seem like an executive. And I had, you know, been a writer in, in college and graduate school. But when I came out here to Los Angeles, it was to work on my PhD because um, I thought I was going to be a professor. Uh, and I had really kind of given up on writing. And he was like, why don't you write a script? Um, they wouldn't <laughs> let me write it in an episode till we got our back order. Or, so our, our back mm -hmm. nine, which turned out to be our back, whatever it was, <laughs> many more than nine. Um, and they were like, well you know, does she have a writing sample? And like, we don't really, and Josh was just like, she's writing a script. It's going to be the first one when we get our back nine and I'm going to guarantee it. So if, if I totally whiff, Josh would have rewritten the script. And based on that, they couldn't really say no. So that was a tremendous opportunity for me. Um, I had written on other scripts before I'd done some work on Charlie's Angels. I'd worked with Michi on Superman, but nothing that had gotten made or that I'd written from scratch that I got to put my name on it. So this was that first opportunity. And I was really meaningful. I mean, it really honestly changed my whole life. And I also, I think, solidified my dynamic, Josh and my dynamic, where I had started as his boss and he was like delivering the script to me. And I was like, hmm. <laughs> um, or giving him notes. Um, and then now I was the baby writer giving my script to the show creator and like, hoping that it was good and that he liked it. So that's a super that long answer. So, yeah. <laughs> no, no but that's great. so cool. And what an episode to have written and like be the one. I mean, 
probably the most iconic episode of the OC. If I it was, it was really that. fun and it was, it was a real um, group effort. We love the holidays on, um, on all of our shows, but especially on the OC. The Thanksgiving episodes <laughs> were always very special. I think we're one of the only teen dramas that did a Passover episode. <laughs> like <laughs> anything that was a family holiday, we were all in. And so being able to do the first, what started as the first, you know, holiday or Christmas episode um, was really special. And then being able to figure out what that was, what the Cohen family as a mixed faith family would have as their holiday. Um, and coming up with this notion, the sort of the theme of the episode is like the combining things, you know, Seth has uh, Summer and Anna, and is he going to have to choose? And with Chris McKay, you don't have to choose, but um, kind of using that theme uh, as a way to, uh-huh. to structure the episode. And then, of course, Ryan um, coming from where he comes from, where not only does he not have any great uh family traditions that he wants to share with the cones, but the uh, holidays are actually kind of traumatic for him. Right. Right. I know a lot of people that the holidays are not particularly nice. (laughs) So I love that you represented both of those things. Yeah. And that was something we were always trying to do, especially in those early in season one with those Ryan stories was to find a way to, you know, it's Thanksgiving, but he's got to go see Trey and he ends up having to like steal a car or, you know, return a car for, to get, you know, Trey out of debt or it's the holidays, but, you know, he has bad associations with that. And, you know, Marissa's uh, having a bit of a meltdown so that it wasn't like once Ryan just came to the OC, everything was great and he didn't have any issues. So how to kind of pull through his past and kind of keep that part of his character alive is something that we talked about a lot. Right. And then there's the, you know, the word Chrismica. <laughs> and so I think that's kind of one of the bigger things. Like, was that something that was discussed between you and Josh? Did you guys come up with it? Was it from something? That was definitely um, in the writer's like- room. So once we decided that they were, we were going to have this merged holiday, that was like eight days of presents followed by one day of many presents. And that like, it was something that <laughs> as a child, Seth had sort of cooked up and like um, forced onto his family. To get presents. To- yeah, exactly. <laughs> That, um, what to call it. So we talked about, is it Hanumas? Is it, you know, on a Christmas or how to, what's the right word for it? And then Lauren Gussis, who was our, um, a writer's assistant at the time, she knew a family that celebrated Christmas. And we were like, yes, that is like, that sounds way better than all these other like things that we're putting on the board and trying to make work. So the term Christmas came from a writer in the room. Yeah. Okay. Because I, of course, you know, looking up and preparing for this episode, I was fascinated to learn a new, a new term. And I thought I wanted to ask you what it felt like to create a portmanteau neologism. And (laughs) I was like, what portmanteau (laughs) meaning two words combined like lunch, brunch, lunch, and a neologism meaning a recently created word that's not wholly accepted by the world. But at one point, Time Magazine listed it as one of the buzzwords of the year. And it's also was added to an authoritative chambers dictionary. (laughs) And and then there's so many things. And so we've, we've commented so many times about how the OC not only reflected pop culture, but created pop culture. Did you have any idea that something as significant as Chrismica would have 
been created into the culture, has its own Wikipedia page, all that kind of stuff. Did you, um, were you, um, short answer? No, <laughs> we had no idea um, <laughs> that was going to happen. And in retrospect, you know, we were like, should we have actually like done something with that? Like, why didn't we come up with like our Chrismica wrapping paper and, uh, you know, green card? <laughs> well, do you remember the Yama clause? Yeah. Did you guys make those or did somebody else make them? Well, we, I think we, I think Warner brothers actually made some official Yama clause in whatever. Okay. Two or three. I remember Josh being particularly super excited about the Yama clause. So somebody had created it and all of a sudden they were everywhere. And some fans wanted to know if, if we all, had some kind of Chris Christmas celebration on set. Do you guys remember if we ever did anything like that? We don't remember that we, <laughs> I, you know, Michael Lang definitely dressed as Santa one year. <laughs> With a yarmulke on probably. He might've just shown up at work that way. <laughs> That's just his uniform. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. When you right. and Josh started the OC and Obviously, and Josh has shared that, you know, that he was just doing what he liked, whether it was music or hanging out with the kids and and taking their personalities and putting it into the script. I'm curious about you've done so many things now as a a successful showrunner. Do you consciously do that now? Um, Do you do you work the same way? Like, what did you take away from the OC that you use now in present day for your shows? I mean, we, that was for both of us, just a huge, huge learning curve. Um, you know, I eventually season two, I, I quit my job, uh, working at Wonderland and came on the show full time as a writer. And then that led to Josh and I, um, creating Gossip Girl together and starting our company. And, um, so that was just like a huge seismic shift. And I, I really learned, um, how to be in a writer's room and how to like break stories properly. Cause a lot of what I, what I knew how to do was just more and I think Josh too he'd never been in a writer's room was just more like instinctual and um in some ways that's really fun but it's also really hard um and uh and can be hit or miss so to really learn how to be in a room how to properly break a story there's also like a kind of story math that comes from working in television where you know we had eight days to make an episode we were five days in three days out you have to sort of internalize how to write a story that's going to fit in that pattern. Um, and that just takes a lot of, just got to break a lot of stories. Um, uh, in terms of having a young cast that um, was, you know, were becoming superstars right in front of your eyes. Um, a lot of lessons were learned from that. Uh, it was, you know, <laughs> it's just a completely immersive experience for those four years. You seem to have that touch on a few uh, different casts that have young kids that, you know, get projected into stardom and whatnot. It's like the magic touch you guys have. <laughs> well, we love, we love discovering new talent. It's truly for us, like the, the great pleasure of being able to, writing is fun. You can tell a story, but then when you're moving into production, putting that cast together for both of us is the most fun part. And can that be a challenge with unknowns and network, say, for instance, like you had um, Peter Gallagher, who was an established um, veteran, and then you have the the leads of the show as essentially unknowns. And in your subsequent teen shows, is that 
is that all ever a battle with the network or do you yeah, have to go to bed? It's almost always a battle because people are just very nervous um, and they like things that are known quantities and they like, no one's going to get fired if they hire somebody who's, you know, has a deep resume of successful um, work behind them. Even if they turn out to be terrible in the role, it's not going to be your fault because it seemed like they'd be on paper, they'd be good. But when you're dealing with young casts, like nobody has that deep of a resume. Maybe they've done like one or two things, or maybe they've done, you know, barely anything, or they've been in their, you know, they studied drama in college or something, or were in their high school play. Like it doesn't really matter. Um, and so they get very, very nervous and they start putting um, the actors through their paces of it's not enough to just, we used to do, I know you guys have talked about the live test, which was just like, completely nerve wracking and also totally tells you nothing about how someone's going to be right. um, on screen in, in, you know, in an actual scene as a part of an ensemble. But then they'd also ask for like a screen test and they'd want hair and makeup. And like, we imagined mm-hmm. that this character had certain colored hair, didn't have curly hair, like just really crazy things. And you just have to like push, my hand really good. you just have to push through it to, you believe in who you believe in and you overcome the obstacles to make it happen. Yeah. I mean, I know we've talked about that. I definitely was not the, the look of summer that was imagined even by Josh when he wrote it, I think. So, you know, but you guys have persevered and quite successfully, I say. Not, I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about, like, <laughs> you know, Gossip Girl and all of that good stuff. I mean, I, I was still very relatively young. I'd done a few series in my in my past, but what the OC taught me, and I'm sorry, listeners, if I repeat myself, but I do. <laughs> but it taught me to take chances and experiment when you're doing long form television and you have that many months. And, and I don't know if I've said this here, but when I would open a script... And I look and I just get excited about the dialogue that you all would write for, for me in particular, I couldn't wait to get to work. <sighs> and I have a question, I have a question for you. What's your advice for actors who try to change dialogue? Cause in my world, I was <sighs> taught that every syllable has been thought through and it's my job to memorize it and say it exactly the way it was written. In my experience, and that might be clouded <laughs> by my perspective as a writer, but if you if the writers have, have really locked into the character and are, are letting the actor's kind of voice and persona be a part of that character as they move forward, say your dialogue. Because mm-hmm, over mm-hmm. time, talking to people looking back, the actors who are like, I never knew if I could change anything. So I always just said, you know, exactly what you guys wrote came away from the shows with really strong, crisp characters and the actors who were like, just kind of said the idea of what their dialogue was felt like their characters didn't have a strong voice and they didn't connect with the Mm -hmm. audience as much. And definitely as an actor, if you don't understand something or like, you know, it's confusing to you. You don't know how to play it for sure. Ask. And sometimes a line change might come out of that. Um, there's also sometimes actors or the writers forget something like <laughs> that happened in a previous episode or right. maybe something that was written one way, but was uh, acted a different way. Or sometimes the 
actors remember performing something one way, but that's not what we used in the edit. So it's, you know, over communication is uh, required sometimes, but. Do you remember who would stray the most from their dialogue on the OC? <laughs> I think I probably know, but. <laughs> I, I won't name any names, um, but some people will <laughs> say like, Adam did a lot of improv, but Adam was yes. also really good at saying his written dialogue and then mm-hmm. adding something at the end or saying his written dialogue, ad-libbing something, then finishing his written dialogue. Um, so that we always had a lot of options and it was never like, oh, Adam didn't really say, you know, the point of the scene or like we're missing something. Um, and that was a really like beautiful meshing of voices, um, especially I think for, for Josh and Adam that the more Adam said his dialogue as written, the more Josh could write specifically for him, the more Adam could riff on that. So it created like a really strong foundation. Um, You never want to feel like you wrote something kind of generic and lame and like, oh, the actor will just say something better on the day because A, it's not fair to the actor to like have to write their own dialogue, but also like you don't know what kind of day somebody's having or like what the vibe is on set. And so the script kind of acts as like a protection for that. That's truly <laughs> one of my favorite things. And I think Josh talked a little bit about this too, is uh, compared to features in television, the creating of that character over time with the actors is such an intimate and like unique situation where you write a character in a pilot, you cast someone, you get to know, and both of you are great examples of this. You get to know that actor, what they're capable of, what their strengths are. You get to write to that. That brings out that and that actor even more. Now they're really like blossoming. Now, you know, Golden Girls is getting written into the script or (laughs) being able to draw from that person's personal life. And that's, you know, helping them connect to their character. And over time, together, you've really created something that I think in a feature, you know, that might shoot over, you know, 30 or 60 days or what have you, you're not getting that same experience of, of living in a character together and exploring them. And, you know, I, I still dream about you guys. Like you're still in my brain. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> is it, is it full of fake tans and, and, and high hair? There's a lot of fake tans. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of high hair. Rachel, I actually wanted to say, um, cause I know you brought this up of like, why did we keep making you wear bikinis at the beginning? <laughs> Yes, do tell. (laughs) Uh, So the idea that we had originally was obviously we couldn't go to the beach as much as we would have liked to go. And so a lot of times we're shooting Mm -hmm. on set, but we kind of wanted to pretend that the beach was just always over there and someone had just like (laughs) running off the water. Um, And that it's true of kids, uh, Melinda, I don't know if this was your experience, but growing up in Orange County in Newport, that they're just like, they are super good swimmers. They surf, they're lifeguards, mm-hmm. they're, you know, and they, and there's a kind of like seamless, like bathing suit, cover up shorts, you know, denim mini skirt. But those kids also have, you know, beachy hair. They're not wearing makeup. Um, there's a naturalism to that. And of course, early on, we got the network from the note or the note from the network that they wanted the characters to be polished, which meant kind of like full <laughs> makeup and like a nice hairdo all the time even if you were in your room studying or even if you'd like just run in from the beach off screen so that kind of created this like weird like Summer's wearing a bikini and she's 
thrilling, you know, corn with like full hair and like a gloss and like a wing eyeliner. And so after a certain point, we were like, let's just, we're not going to do the bikinis anymore. They won't let us change the hair and makeup. So summer can So let's change the clothes. And also I I think we got to know your character and, and, you know, the way you created summer, the summer wasn't in and out of the water. Summer was like sitting on a blanket. (laughs) Yeah. Oh no, totally. She was just tanning. She She was was definitely not not there to like, she wasn't, summer was not a junior lifeguard. No, for sure. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you clothing me for (laughs) a while, but everyone had their bikini moments. So yeah, very, very much so part of the OC. (laughs) I think it would be lovely if we could actually get into some of the specifics of the episode. Do you want to do the synopsis? Yeah, I can read the synopsis. Uh, I bet Stephanie could probably recite it. (laughs) I know, I know. Um, Do you know the episode just like scene by scene the way... Josh knows the pilot. the pilot. I do, but then I also, um, coming home on the plane yesterday from New York, I watched uh, the Thanksgiving, um, the what we call mm-hmm. Luke's Gay Dad episode, and uh, yeah. uh, Chris McCall on the plane, which was really fun. Oh, how'd you feel cool. about it? I mean, as everyone said, those episodes really stand up. I always, <laughs> I remember like the big moves of all of the episodes, but there's a lot of small stuff that I forget, and like. Uh, the yoga Lotties run that, you know, in the, in the Cohen kitchen is so funny. And it's so sweet to see again, as we're kind of discovering like Ben's sense of humor and like Ryan is getting more relaxed in the Cohen household that he's able to like riff with Sandy and like make fun of Kirsten. It's just, it's really lovely. All right. Well, I'm going to read the synopsis for Chrismica. It's Seth's favorite time of the year. Chrismica. The part Christmas, part Hanukkah, super holiday. Ryan is in need of some convincing to get into the holiday spirit. Marissa continues to struggle with personal problems. Kirsten risks her job at the Newport Group when she finds incriminating evidence that she hands over to Sandy. Summer and Anna vie to win Seth's heart. A lot goes down at the Newport Group holiday party, but Julie is determined to make it a party no one will forget. Directed by Sanford Bookstaver, written by our lovely Stephanie Savage. Well, this has a pretty iconic, classic, amazing Seth opener <laughs> um, as he's explaining Chrismica to a doe-eyed or wide-eyed um, deer in the headlights. That's it, <laughs> Ryan and Sandy and Kirsten walk in with the tree, and it's what was the music here? Sandy put a, put a lot of like really fun. Um, unexpected Chrismica, Sandy Bookstaver, our director, uh, unexpected Christmas mm-hmm. um, music in the episode. And right from the beginning, you have like a sort of jingle jangly, like it's not a traditional, you know, OC singer songwriter, mm-hmm. like indie song. It's like very fun, a little bit silly, heightened Christmas music. Mm-hmm. Or cl- it's not like klezmer Christmas music, <laughs> mixing the two traditions from the beginning. And it feels like this is about the time when you started writing these opening monologues, monologues for Brody and this explanation, <laughs> and he just embraced it with yeah. everything. Totally ran with it, is wearing Josh's actual ugly Christmas sweater with the oh. reindeer on it. <laughs> and this is like, it comes in with Seth with a lot of energy. Like, I can't wait to tell you this thing. It's so amazing. And a little bit of like a want, want Ryan moment where like Seth kind of walks into it not realizing that like 
Ryan isn't going to be like, that sounds amazing. I can't wait to start celebrating Christmas with you. But it's actually like <laughs> holidays are a bummer for me. I don't like them. Right. I have nothing to contribute. And also like, I'm not even sure I'm going to participate in like what you're bringing to the table. So that kind of set up <laughs> the stakes and the arc of the whole episode, which is really, can we get Ryan on board the Christmas train? Is he going to come hang that stocking at the end of the episode? Yeah. His little stocking. I bet it had such a huge impact right off the bat for people who turned this episode on and went, oh, my family does that. I've never yes. seen this. Mm-hmm. I'm actually a Chris Mecca kid. My mom and my dad's Jewish and my mom was raised Catholic. She's not like a practicing Catholic, but we celebrated both. We didn't combine them, which had the OC been around back then, uh, we would have. <laughs> But I was a Christmaca kid. And I think it's so cool that you, we, you, you created this thing that, you know, a lot of kids can relate to. Yeah. And also, I think it was really fun. Like, Josh was not a Christmaca kid. He's a, a no. Jewish kid <laughs> um, that had <laughs> Hanukkah. And I was, you know, a Protestant kid from Canada. And so we really got to bring, like, I actually have my, my mom's ornaments um, our Kirsten's mom's ornaments on the tree. I brought Aww. some from home and, you know, he was able to, I, I also didn't know that much about Hanukkah. So I had to get like quickly immersed in those traditions. Um, and we kind of like built it together with things from our own families. That's really neat. I like that little tidbit. Um, what I liked actually like in the beginning of the episode when Seth and Ryan are in the pool house and Seth's wrapping presents and everything. And then he talks about his starter pack. I was like, that's actually a Brody starter pack. Like that wasn't, <laughs> that's not Seth. That is a Brody starter pack. <laughs> so I don't know, like you got, I don't know how you, if yeah, you knew I, that, I, you were I, just like, I'm just going to do Brody. Like, I can't remember. It definitely came from Josh. I can't remember if he pitched it to me and I wrote it or if like, I started writing it and I was like, what's in this? Like any hints of what's in that code starter pack? Um, Cause yeah. I would not have put Goonies in there. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, that was, that was maybe the one Josh flourished on the, on the, on the Seth starter, on the Adam slash Seth starter pack. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that was a really fun, it was the idea he was going to give a gift that was a, a, about himself. <laughs> like a very, this is what I like. Yes. I give it to both like here's a gift for you yeah. about me. About me. And you're both <laughs> going to get exactly the same version. It's not even going to be like yes. tailored to like what, <laughs> what you might like about me. Just what I like about myself. Right. Yes. He's Let's so, talk about narcissism. No, I'm just kidding. Right. He's so endearingly, yeah. just so endearingly self-absorbed, which is just, it, but it came off so well and everybody yeah. just had a crush on him. Yeah. <laughs> The Kirsten um, Sandy uh, storyline is really, it's really poignant in this episode. And Caleb, uh, do you have, I have to ask you, do you have a connection to Alan? Isn't he on Dynasty? Yeah, he's on Dynasty. Can you help get us, get him on the show? Because yeah. we want to talk to him. <laughs> he <has a laughs> I'll totally help with that. But uh, Caleb, and they're still dealing with the height situation. And um, now that Caleb wants to take Sandy back to, um, he wants to, what is it he wants to do? Sorry. What is it that he wants to be doing? Sandy thinks Sorry. they've made a deal uh, to yeah. sell the Heights, to buy back the Heights. And then Caleb at the last minute is asked for more money, which is now going to sabotage Chrismica because Kirsten and Sandy are both going to have to work through the holidays to prepare to go to trial. So Sandy's been trying to avoid going to trial and he thought he had succeeded, but then he finds out he has not. Right. 
So if they can make a deal, they don't go to trial. Right. Obviously. Okay. Very good. Yes. And this was another um, Adam scene that was just so, he's so excited about Chrismica and it's not going to be ruined. And I loved his um, puffy vest. That I, had know, an I, actual, that too. I was like, Iconic. that's the yeah, coolest vest. It had a sunset on it. It was yeah. like the OC logo. Yeah. <laughs> it was perfect. And like, yeah. it's a puffy vest, but it's like, we're in California. So it's right. like the vest. It's, it's like, perfect. <laughs> Yep. And the other storyline that's going on, obviously, is Marissa is not doing so well. And <laughs> shocking. <laughs> Marissa is one of the ones she just wants to skip Christmas. And right. which is a which can be a real, you know, it, it's very interesting, Stephanie, watching it as an adult um, now as a with a mother as a mother of a 21 year old. And I just my heart breaks for for Marissa every yeah. time we watch these ep- episodes and what you know, just not seeing the signs, Jimmy and Julie and everyone not seeing the signs of, of this very vulnerable, fragile child that just wants to feel safe and protected. And she doesn't. Yeah. And that um, for me is a really important part of Marissa going back to the pilot of like, we can't forget that when we meet this character, you know, in the first episode, she like drinks so much that she's passed out in her driveway. (laughs) Like that, Mm -hmm. that needs to feel very serious and that that culminates in she can say what she wants but a suicide attempt in uh an od in mexico and then that is just so like catastrophic for her family that when it kind of seems like she's okay they're like great she must be okay like let's just kind of move on and like we kind of said she'd go to therapy but then we never really made her a little bit that was like us in the writers also like we never made Marissa go to therapy. So um, it's time that she needs to deal with this stuff. Um, and mm-hmm. it's pr- watching it. I was like, this is pretty subtle in the episode. I could have done a better job of digging this out, but the idea, and I'm jumping forward a little bit, but when she gets caught um, uh, shoplifting, the, mm-hmm. the idea that that was kind of a cry for help. And when they're like, why did you do this? And she's like, I, I don't know. And she can't say it. In my mind, like Marissa actually did want to go to therapy. Like she didn't want to because it was going to be hard. And But she had to do something to, to kind of reactivate. Like we can't just move past everything that happened that she actually didn't mm-hmm. need help. And so that that was kind of her version of a cry for help that then ultimately put her in, got her to go to right. therapy, got her parents to kind of right. take her um, issues a little bit more seriously. Yeah. She was probably more rebelling against it because her mom wanted her to do it. Exactly. To rebel against Julie. So. Oh, my daughter is shocking that she, she even agrees with me on any given day, but when she does, it's like, that's a miracle. (laughs) (laughs) I think I'm already dealing with that as well. I think I made a note in here. There's a part of the episode where the way that Misha talks back to you or like says something, I'm like, oh my God, I'm already experiencing that with my six-year-old. Like, mm-hmm. This is terrifying. <laughs> but I some very, felt, very, very realistic yeah, moments. I always, you know, felt very tenderhearted towards that part of Marissa, of, of a, a girl mm-hmm. who kind of always felt like she didn't belong in this world and, and, you know, was so beautiful and so like sensitive, but like, there was all this attention on her and how does, how does she, you know, deal with that? And she, she wants to please people, but like, if that means being with Luke or that means, you know, doing what her parents said, you know, it's all about her Mm -hmm. finding herself. And I thought, I always thought Misha was so good at acting 
those sort of darker parts of Marissa that I was mm-hmm. very happy to write an episode where she was drinking in the bathroom, where she like drinks and drives and like rams <laughs> another car. Um, and that fight mm-hmm. on the side of the road that Ryan and Marissa has, one of oh. the favorite things I've ever written just because mm-hmm. it felt so true to where those characters were at that moment. Yeah. I just got, I just got chills me watching too. it. Yeah, I got chills when when Ben says like, well, she's like, you're scaring me. He's like, well, you're scaring me. Like, I have chills again because when Ben delivers that line, I started I teared up. I mean, I tend to do that, but like it was so powerful and and oh, it was written so well and acted so well. That scene. Um, yeah, the, yeah I, the, just, they did such a good job with that scene. Um, they did. And that that's story, too, again, which is like a subtle, more bubbling underneath the surface story of Ryan really feeling like he can't get into another codependent relationship. Like he was taking care of his mom and now he's taking care of Marissa. So the idea that by the end of this episode, Sandy's just like, you're a kid. Marissa has parents, like let her go to therapy by herself. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's right. a really yeah. important Ryan story. What's also so cute. They're so cute on the mall date and the song that's playing. I love the song that's playing. Maybe it's Christmas by Ron Sexsmith. Ron Sexsmith. That's right. Yes. Um, it's so cute, but they're so cute in the mall. And Mindy, you commented on like how Misha's in heels and like we're making. Oh my gosh, that was so cute that you guys put her. Yeah, in the montage, put her in heels. Yeah, yeah. they they. That was actually because Misha. Something that I would do differently if we're doing the show over again is we really we made Misha always wear flats, and then when we did Gossip Girl, Blake was just like, "I'm not wearing flats. Like I'm taller than everybody. (laughs) Just deal with it." Um, yeah, I think someone said like Misha in the test, like kind of slouched down yeah. just to give Ben a little like boost. Because yeah. I love the Blake's like, I'm wearing heels. <laughs> well, her. the other storyline that we um, certainly, certainly have to discuss is the Summer Anna Seth uh, storyline yes. and and how um, Ryan is warning Seth that, dude, you're going to have to um, pick here. And he's just setting himself up for for, I don't know, failure or life lessons, so to speak. Yeah. Now, did you always know that it was going to be Wonder Woman? Yes, because um, <laughs> Warner Brothers owned Wonder Woman, so we knew we could do that. Oh. Um, and then just thinking about, like, your face and your hair, and, like, you'd be such a cute Wonder Woman. <laughs> and the costume department I'm like, killed it. Like, that's the best Wonder yes. Woman costume I've ever seen. Yeah, it was not like bought at a Halloween store. Yeah, you know, exactly. like it was definitely from archives. I don't know yeah. what from. Warner um, Brothers has a huge costume archive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. I should find that out. But where um, something you know, that came from that archive that you may not know is what Julie's juicy pink juicy sweatsuit from the pile. Yeah. Oh, it's no there. It, it came. <laughs> so they were. Oh, it was micromanaging, oh. and we had a budget for the pilot because no one knew it right. would be successful, and it seemed like it would not be. Um, <laughs> that they were like, "Oh, she doesn't need a real juicy sweatsuit; just get like any pink sweatsuit." And it was like, "No." And we had actually <laughs> had a pink juicy sweatsuit in our fast lane pilot that we did the year before. Oh my god! Had a much bigger budget, so I was like, <sighs> "Somebody is going to go find that juicy sweatsuit <laughs> in the Warner Brothers archives." Or you're going to buy me a new one because that's not there. And so it has to be juicy. Yeah. You mean they get that detailed? Like this character needs this and somebody says, no, get 
it was it was an overall note that like we didn't need to buy designer things. We could buy like things that looked like designer things. So a lot of people have asked because that and I thought for some reason that we were gifted a lot of um or at least lent some brand name type things. But is it true that everything was fake? Because I thought no, Misha actually that came had from. So, I don't think so. I okay. I don't good. think good I don't, to my knowledge, we've never used anything that was fake. Like sure, we might have used like a jumpsuit that or juicy suit that was not, you know, that was a different brand. But like we never had fake handbags or Misha was a Chanel ambassador. So she got all mm-hmm. kinds of stuff from them directly that graciously she allowed us to feature on the show. But to my knowledge, we've never used anything fake on the show. Yeah, right. we didn't think so. I'm not sure. Where we didn't think so. We didn't and think originally, so. Like, yeah. When you do a pilot, <laughs> no one, they're just like, what is this? Oh, it might not even end up airing on television. We can't help you. Also, pilot season corresponds with award season. So it's right at the same time as the Academy Award and Golden Globes. So no designer has the bandwidth to be like, let me get on the phone with you and talk about this. And let me see what I have. So our selects for our pilot fashion show were slightly <laughs> underwhelming given what we were trying to achieve. <laughs> but over time, once the show is successful, it becomes a lot easier to get things from designers and um, you don't have to I buy still have a poochie on. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. I just remembered something, Stephanie. Do you remember that fabulous leather dress that Julie was wearing for the pilot? And I decided because the, Julie was described as a woman who'd had too much plastic surgery, which I had not. <laughs> but I chose to put in those cutlets, you know, uh-huh. in the bra. So in that, so you see it's, you're like, Cutlets are basically my, my breasts. <laughs> and I remember coming to you after the show got picked up and saying, is it okay if I don't pad myself like that anymore? And, and you gave me permission. <laughs> You're like, okay. I'm like, yeah, because um, I don't think I want to keep that up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, speaking of padding, just, you know, touching on the Wonder Woman costume again, I'm like, how do my boobs look so big? I must have had cutlets too. Or it was just my youth and, you know, the baby fat goes to your boobs. It's a, anyway. the, the, it's a Wonder Woman outfit in, in many it's ways. A, in oh many yeah. ways. Wonder it's bra, Wonder structure. Woman. There you oh, go. Well, we're talking but, about wardrobe. Okay. I won't do this all the time, but so I know it. you guys have talked a lot about Ryan's choker. Yes. <laughs> Please do. Do you have Mystery insight? solved. So... I can't fully say exactly what the conversation was. I don't recall, but the idea was that Ryan was going to be very, very plain that Ryan was someone who was a chameleon that he had to move from environment to environment. You know, he had good manners. He was a good kid. Um, He had like his three pack of Hanes white t-shirts. He had his, you know, gray hoodie and his uh, jacket and his jeans and his boots. And that's kind of like all that's what he came to the OC wearing. And um, Alexandra Welker, our costume designer, I don't think Doug Lyman would have been a part of this conversation because I don't think he would have cared, but she was like, it's very <laughs> simple. Like it's very, very plain and he wears it all the time. And a lot of times costume designers like to do something where they'll give you a, an actor a little detail, like maybe it's a, a ring or a bracelet or um, uh-huh. it's kind of that something that you have in a po- in your pocket that like maybe the audience doesn't even notice it, but it's there mm-hmm. and there's a story <laughs> behind it. So 
there were riffs on like, well, what could that be for Ryan? That like you could see that would help make his like super plain outfit slightly less plain. Um, and then I'll make this like a contest. There is a certain uh, 90s TV heartthrob that had a very similar choker that we were like. Dylan hmm. McKay? Sorry. What can you say? Okay. Someone who is an acclaimed actor today. They're an acclaimed actor today? Yep. Like and a worst-nominated independent film. Words not Brad Pitt, no. Was on a teen show that did one season, very claimed. Oh, Jared Leto. My so called life. Yeah. He had a choker? He had a choker. No. Oh, good for you, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Well, one season, you hear one season and people so, I mean, my so called life. Who, oh, wow. by, who, Patrick was the costume. We had yeah, Patrick crazy as hell. Oh my yeah. God, wait. And then he had a choker, and so that's what she took that from? So it was the idea, it was like, we wanted to have something, and we're like, well, if they did that, it's probably fine. And the idea was maybe, like, <laughs> him, like a, a girlfriend, like, later when we met Teresa in this episode, or in the uh, Thanksgiving episode, maybe Teresa gave it to him, maybe it was something that, like, he and his brother had the same one. Um, but then it was obviously so distracting <laughs> that... It was so distracting. We got, no, we got rid of it. And I, I, where the cuff came from, I, I cannot. Yeah. I'm like, did you get rid of it and it transformed like, into a leather cuff? Like it went, it went from neck to wrist. Like yeah. it's still there. <laughs> this random leather accessory. <laughs> and it's still distracting. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Okay. Well, at least that now we know the story behind the that's, damn leather choker. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. That you is will, awesome. No, uh, listeners, you will not get that anywhere else, but here. Thank yeah. you. If it was good enough for Jordan <laughs> yeah, Catalano, you. it was good enough for Ryan Atwood. We figured I mean, hey, you know, I will say, I get it. <laughs> Hearing that, I get it. I also, you know, speaking of wardrobe, and I know I keep going back to the Wonder Woman, but when I see the dress I'm in and the hair and the makeup <laughs> and everything else, I'm like, how do you not know what's coming? Like in my mind, but I also <laughs> obviously know what's coming. But I was like the bright blue eyeshadow and like the tiara in my hair. And I remember we had to find a dress that actually oh, yeah. fit over that mm-hmm. costume Mm-hmm. but still looked holiday and had to be strapless and the whole thing. It was quite the production. To me, I, I would say the blue eyeshadow was a tell, but everything else was just so like adorable and like holiday <laughs> festive that I went with it. I thought they did a really there was good a lot, job. They did. There was a lot of extra hair. Yeah. But <laughs> the blue, yeah, the blue, blue eyeshadow was like the only, like, that's a lot of blue. Yeah. But maybe it was for Hanukkah. <laughs> <laughs> I believed it. I mean, when you look at the choices, you know, Anna in particular took a lot of, she's the alt girl. She took a lot of um, hair, makeup, blush, clothing choices. And I think, I think all the girls had their certain styles Yeah, and it was believable because it was Christmas. And especially when you see like Julie, for some reason, I had a lot of those halter dresses with the hair, like (laughs) the hair, higher hair, higher the hair, closer to God kind of hair. <laughs> oh, yep. I know. When you walk in and your hair's done, I'm like, there it is again. We have there like it is big again. curls on top of your head. <laughs> oh, the Julie special. To talk about the Julie story a little bit, that she's kind of like uh, trying to cement her relationship with Caleb um, after the like tragic, you know, Marissa, like 
unveiling it at the the yacht party that um, trying to really hold that position in society and like the pressure on her to make this a great party and kind of the the weird way in which the the Julie Cooper aesthetic actually is the right aesthetic for um, for the Newport crew Christmas uh, party because that's just a fabulous party. We actually went back to the same location that we went to Mm -hmm. for the pilot for the cocktail party for the fashion show because that was such a great location and we barely saw it. We were only there for those few scenes outside. Um, And to sort of just kind of shoot it differently, if people thought it was the same location, that would be fine because maybe the fashion show cocktail party was at the Newport group or, you know, it was somewhere else. So um, it was, I mean, that Christmas tree, like people still bring up that tree to me. (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, and a lot of fans wanted to know when we shoot, we always have to shoot, you know, if it's, if it's airing in Christmas. Also, we had this, had we had the, um, the baseball break. So yes, we shot in summer and it's always hot and we have <laughs> to celebrate, um, at a different time of the year. But, um, I do want to say that that is one of my favorite Julie scenes when she comes in angry, hot and angry, and she's just like, what the hell's going on? And has to say the, um, the two lines with way to rule the iron fist Stalin. And I'm not having my party ruined by your sticky fingers. (laughs) They were so harsh that I got the giggles (laughs) during rehearsal. And right before I just kept laughing, I couldn't get it out. And it's one of those things that, you know, I, I try and just, it was so harsh that I would just start laughing and then Tate would laugh and we, should, we were all just giggling and you have to, you have to get it out and then you have yeah. to commit yeah. because it was like, you're grounded fine starting tomorrow. <laughs> you, can't, you can't mess with my life. Yeah. That's, just, that's, but, so um, that's Julie in a nutshell. I'm just like, I'm trying to be a good parent. I'm trying to have boundaries you know, I, I read this in a parenting book or like I heard somebody talking about this when I was getting my, you know, Froyo. This is how you're supposed to be a good parent. But, ugh, I just really need you at this party. I can't like. Not right, right. <laughs> I've had a lot of people comment that they really disliked Julie and when they first watched it when they were young as a teenager. And now as an adult, they're like, wait, she was kind of right. Because they identify with her as, um, you know, as an adult in that way. I also think because Julie starts from a place of being an outsider, being from Riverside, not being like uh, Kirsten, whose dad owns everything and is like the princess of Newport. That you, she's she's got a scrappy quality where you're just like, I'm rooting for this lady. Like she's had that actually reminds me of my mom. Of like, you know what? Sometimes you have to be a bit of a scrapper to get what get what you deserve. It's not just going to be given to you. Some people just get it and they can be very nice and calm and happy all the time because things are just handed to them. And other people, you got to work for them. There's going to be a little bit of hustle involved and, and Julie Cooper's hustling. She's, she's a fighter in that way. She's never going mm-hmm. back to that. But of course, in the next um, subsequent seasons, we'll find that she has to go back to something and still survive. And somehow I love that she just doesn't I mean, she does care, but then it's, but then she can come right back and yeah, not yeah. really care about what people think. And then she ultimately has one of the biggest growth arcs totally. of, of yeah. all of the characters. Yeah. I think it really is cool that it shows that you can really survive anything. And Julie mm-hmm. is a perfect example of that with but even, you know, the death of your daughter, you know, although all of the things that were thrown at your character and 
it's just a cool testament to like women and being able to survive anything. <laughs> Speaking about mothers, I want to, because this was one of my other favorite scenes in the episode, when Kirsten's looking at the paperwork and Seth comes in and says, you know, you're, that she says she's taking a vacation and he says, oh, I don't judge. I only mock, which was just, I wanted to know if he had improv some of these, some of this dialogue because it was, it sounded like Brody, but it's maybe <laughs> at that point you guys were writing for him. And no, I should have looked that up. Like the eyebrows line, oh, were they coming in? Mm-hmm. I don't remember mm-hmm. if, if I wrote that, if Josh wrote that, if Brody improved it, um, I would have to like, look at scripts and compare because again, it was so like you would be inspired by like thinking how Brody would sound if he said that, and that would make you want to write it or like he would see something that's written and that would give him an idea for something to add the, I would, I would have to check on that. I don't recall. Right. Adam was so cute though. And when he's talking to Kelly in the kitchen and he does his little smile, I was like, that's so Brody, you know, he was really cute. It shows humor and vulnerability in just a few little lines when he talks to his mom about not knowing what to say Mm -hmm. to Ryan. Mm -hmm. And I thought I wanted to ask you if, if, are there characters voices that you just know inherently or is Josh the humor? Is Stephanie the vulnerability? Like, what do you guys bring to your projects? I think it doesn't quite break down um, like that. Josh definitely brought a lot of humor um, for sure. And the, and the voices, and I mean, he wrote the pilot. So we're all, everybody on the show is, is matching to that. You know, that's the like Uber voice and Josh was always the filter. So everything went through him. And if he didn't like something, we didn't do it. And that was just very yeah. like, make your case, state your reasons and he'll decide. And that's kind of where the voice of the show uh, stays consistent and doesn't, you know, become too many different things. But Josh also is really, really empowering of the writers. So there'd be certain things like um, a tiny thing, but I actually think there's an example in this episode. When I, growing up, um, we were not extremely poor, but uh, when my dad was a student, um, we lived in a housing development where I got access to a lot of uh, Ryan's and Don Atwood's. Um, And one of the things that I took away from my childhood was like a marker of how your family was doing was whether or not you had milk in your fridge. So we always have milk. Mm. And I knew that that made us like very fortunate that my mom had milk in her coffee and I had milk in my cereal. But you might sleep over at someone's house where they were eating their cereal dry and you knew not to ask for milk because there probably wasn't any. Um, And giving that Mm. to Ryan. And I just sort of told Josh that as a story of like, this is a thing that I observed. And he was just like, great, Ryan, dry cereal, black coffee. And that was the rule for the whole show. Um, so oh. he kind of would embrace things like that, like really profoundly that that would just be, if it made, if it resonated with him, that's what we were doing. And like, um, when you guys have Lila Gerstein on, I'm sure she'll mm-hmm. want to talk about uh, Summer's arc and like, a lot of Summer's activism and Summer's love of animals and the environment really came from Lila, um, that those were important oh. things to her. And as we were doing the Brown story and like, we didn't want you to stay Brown forever. So what, what could happen? <laughs> they could make her come back. Um, you know, that Lila really brought a lot of herself to that activism story and Josh totally embraced that. So um, it wasn't like, 
Lila wrote that, but like that came from Lila and became a part of the the paradigm of the show. Um, and that's like a, in my opinion, a true sign of like a strong showrunner who's really able to embrace um, ideas from the writers and make them canon for the show. That is so cool. I've never heard that before. <laughs> um, well, that's either of those stories actually. I, one so make this Lila makes me think of this in Summer's arc. So when I, I handed my script into Josh and I was, of course, extremely nervous, I'm like, tell me when you can read it. I'm going to send it exactly then. And then you have to call me in like, you know, two hours <laughs> after that. Um, and that, you know, very, very positive, really liked it. Um, you know, tiny, tiny thoughts. The one note he gave me is he goes, you, you've written Seth too smart. Um, like he's <laughs> using too many SAT words and like, he's not articulate like that. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like Seth is like a super genius. And he's like, no, he's not. He's like, has average intelligence. He likes comic books and he likes, <laughs> you know, alternative music, but like, he's not like a smart geek. And I was just like, oh. no, but that gave me the idea of hmm, if Seth is not super smart, maybe Summer is. <laughs> and that's sort of game. Oh my God. Is that where it came from? That, yeah, that, that the idea that Summer might be, you know, and I, when I mean smarter, I don't mean like. Um, no, of course. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. In the world, but just like at school, Summer might like actually right. get a higher SAT score than Seth um, would be a really fun story, to, like slow burn and bring to fruition. Um, and that oh came God, from the realization so cool. that Seth was kind of good at school. You know, got me pluses because, you know, it's going to be OK, because- but not the smartest. There've been so many hints. Yeah. There've been so many hints of that, Rachel, that we've seen, you know, when you said, when Anna was making fun of you and I said, summer's in on it or that she read Madame Bovary. Bovary, And and he's like, what? And that there's these little, but you're playing, but there's just like so many, there's so many beautiful women who play there's, they smartly play a little bit coy or hot and cold (laughs) as we say it. I did it in high school. My acting teacher in high school sat me aside and she's like, I see what you're doing. You're playing (laughs) dumb. Like I see it. I know that's not you and knock it off. She's like, you're trying to get by doing that, that girl thing where you play, you know what I mean? And she literally, my acting coach in high school, I have so much to attribute to Judy Weldon. Uh, That was one of the things. The other things was I I, I sulked off after an audition for a play and apologized. And she didn't give me the part just to teach me a lesson that you don't sulk if you don't think you do good. Anyway, those are like two lessons from her. But yeah, she was like, stop playing dumb. That's not who you are. There's a line, I forget what episode it's in, where Summer says, I'm shallow, not stupid. And I was just like, that's yeah. exactly it. Like, just because you <laughs> like magazines and makeup and tanning doesn't tanning, mean that yeah. you're not smart. Tanning, gossip and shopping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, and yeah. I think that's what's interesting about these characters. I know you wrote, I know you were writing a dissertation when you um, came to California. I don't know what it was. It was a film theory and and film history or yeah. theory. <laughs> but I was curious, if something, <laughs> but I was curious if you had to write a dissertation about the OC, would it, I know there's some, some professors who've written a book of uh, OC, the critical thinking and feminism. And there really are so many feministic themes throughout this show and particularly with, you know, Kirsten and, and Julie and Summer, mm-hmm. you know, these very strong women that that are Julie's very manipulative, let's say. She's mm-hmm. she's not she's she's not 
she is, she might be shallow because of what, what the, because she likes things or superficial things, but she's very, she knows exactly what she's doing. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. some, but, yeah. and then speaking of adults, I do want to say, um, the Sandy Kirsten bedroom scene where he comes in and he's late and she's going to give him that, um, the survey, my reaction. And again, people, I love to honor and congratulate my friends who are great fucking actors. Okay. Kirsten or Kelly and Peter are so good in this scene and the, the acting choices and their relationship I mean, they're all so good, but for some reason, this one stood out to me that um, it just shows the depth of their relationship and what they do for each other. And it's one of the reasons I think that the adult storylines worked so well. And I just wanted to comment on that, uh, on that. Scene. Yeah, it's so there's, it's so well acted. I mean, their whole relationship, but that scene, especially where we've been telling 13 episodes of the story or whenever the Heights story started, maybe episode four. Um, or later than that, seven. Um, but it's been going on for a while. And to finally get to the place where Kirsten has this information that could sink her dad. And we structured it so that you wouldn't know what it was until late, until the party. And I was actually like leaning in going like, wait, what? I kind of forget. What is, what is this piece of paper? Um, um, structuring it a little bit more like a mystery or like a thriller than you would normally on like a, you know, teen drama. But that she's ready to make that choice, that she's going to choose Sandy, even if it means choose her marriage, choose what's right for the environment, um, even if that means uh, losing her job, which we know is really, really important to her, that her identity as a professional woman um, is a huge part of who she is. And so the fact that she's willing to put that on the line is really emotional. Yeah. What I loved, how you wrote, so we've touched on the Anna and Seth and Summer thing of this episode. But what I loved was how you represented both of us acknowledging how amazing the other one's gift or surprise was. And I was like, that, that is really cool. Cause that is like, okay, the girl power, like, what, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like it was really awesome for them both to acknowledge how incredible they thought the other ones was. Um, and I thought that was beautiful. Thank you. That is something that I will say. I'm not <laughs> sure if we had only had like a male writer's room, if that story would have been told that way, because right. um, definitely I felt like it was super important that that was a moment where they acknowledged, as you say, what was great about the other one. So it wasn't that Anna called Summer Wonder Whore and mm-hmm. Summer was like, you made him a comic. What are you in eighth grade? That those are things they said about themselves. And the other girl yeah. said that what they had done is amazing. And the idea that Anna could like draw something and tell a story was like unbelievable to Summer um, and, you know, filled her with admiration and respect and even jealousy. But that also, and then Anna felt like the way in which Summer could just like have the creativity to like fully embody no fantasy was like, <laughs> you know, she couldn't compete with that. So that that, that moment made it, it's, more of like a true triangle where the girls actually have their own stories with each other. And it's not just like two girls competing with Seth, which I think Mm -hmm. we did nicely over. Mm -hmm. There's lots of moments where Summer and Anna, after they find out about each other in Thanksgiving are bonding with each other as girls Mm -hmm. and not 
um, fighting over staff where there's there's nuance to that, which I think is really important. And I think yeah. it's Easter egg. It's, My friend Heather Von Rohr actually drew Seth's comic um, for oh. Anna because I really wanted it to feel like I felt like if someone in the art department did it, it would be too like professional and like <sighs> masculine. It tends to be the case that like male comics like write the female characters with like extremely large press and huge lips. And I was like, it's got to feel like it's writ- it's drawn by a, you know, 16 year old, 17 year old, you know, indie girl from Pittsburgh. And so um, I had my friend Heather draw it for us. That was a mystery we were trying to solve. So I'm glad you said that. I think this is a perfect, this um, triangle that you're talking about is a perfect example of taking, um, you know, not an original concept, but putting a brand new spin on it. And the idea that these girls came up with their very special, very unique gifts. Unlike one was the art. starter pack. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Unlike that, one was art and one was sex. I mean, for lack of a better word. <laughs> no, and it was. And now in, in the real world, it's very clear which one had the reaction of a teenage boy. Right. Which right. Was, Oh my God, I'm going to pass out. It's, and then you all took it. Uh, we all know, I mean, I feel like I, it's sorry guys, if there's spoilers here, but, but, but he ends up going with art and it's interesting mm-hmm. because I think it probably had a huge impact on teenage girls that were maybe, you know, just learning about their having crushes on boys and that maybe they thought, oh, wow, I could be a cool girl who could went over a boy with art right? or, or vice versa. But it was well, interesting that I mean, you explored it. To be fair, she snuck over on New Year's. To get <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. She's a little sneaker <laughs> too. Yeah. Um, so. <laughs> no, and, but I like, I also like, it was important that the episode ended with Seth lost both girls. Right. 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 And it was. Yes. yes. I know. I love that. Away. And, and they had the same caution that Ryan had of like, someone's going to get hurt if you don't, you know, right. figure out what you want. Now, was it Sandy's idea to shoot that like in a circular motion, like yeah. between the two? And right. yeah, that was cool. Our director. Yeah, it looked yeah, really cool. That was awesome. And then, yeah, Do I you- didn't know what girl he was talking to until the right. camera spun around. Right. Do you know, I'm watching the lasso bit when I like throw the lasso onto Seth. And if I remember correctly, I probably either couldn't do it or it took me like a hundred times. Probably. I think we I'm ended gonna... up having props having to do the lasso. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I feel like someone was off camera and did it for me. I mean, <laughs> respectfully, lassoing someone is extremely hard. Like cowboys say that is a, learning. That's a real skill. I would have had to have yeah. practiced a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I just wanted to know. No judgment. The other thing that is was a nice twist was, you know, Caleb coming in hot and Kirsten standing her ground and he doesn't fire her. He ends up being proud of her and says that we'll make a real estate mogul out of you yet. Yeah. (laughs) The fact that he really admires that she's willing to stand up for what she believes in and even actually not just that, but do something kind of deceitful, like can mm-hmm. find this thing, conceal it from him, give it to Sandy, who's a lawyer for the other side. Um, you know, that's very uh, like dirty pool, but he respected it because she did it because she had an idea in her head of what she wanted to happen and she made it happen. What is it exactly that she found? 
She found a survey that said that the Heights is seismically unsound, so he wouldn't be able to build mm. on it anyway. So right. it's actually all a big con job to get money from the city. Right. She did what, the right thing. Conservatory or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. Got it. So after this, um, the introduction of one of the most uh, memorable characters, and I think it goes back to what you said, um, that ultimately this cry for help that Marissa ends up going to therapy and honestly, such a well-crafted scene. And I know that people ultimately didn't like Oliver. Of course, we're speaking about Oliver but it's an impactful character. And I know that Josh has said that he would not have changed anything about that character. He says he's changed. He would change other things about the show, but not this. And I agree mm. with him. And I thought this was a really, really telling scene because you can see that for, for the first time, somebody she's relating to somebody who instantly knows her. Right. Oh, and again, that, I, I think I could have done a better job of like setting up at the beginning but when Oliver says you obviously wouldn't be here if you didn't want to find out what was wrong with you, that she's a little bit busted of like, she, she does want to get better. She does want to know what the problem is. Um, and the fact that he sees her so clearly um, and is kind of, you know, he's mysterious, but he's in the same boat. He's also seeing the therapist presumably for some similar reason. Um, and I think I, I love, I, I love that character and I love, introducing him the way we did it's pretty unusual that we would introduce a new character at the end of an episode and not like mm -hmm. in the teaser of the next episode but it felt important that you actually see marissa show up for therapy to finish the arc of this episode and that felt like the right place to run into him to not have her go to therapy a second time and then he's there um and it, it also just added to the mystery of the character where you felt like we wouldn't be doing that unless it was important and of course, um, because it is so the irony that Marissa's finally doing the right thing by going to therapy and it's going to lead to bringing this character to the <laughs> right. world. It's very similar that when um, Kirsten goes to rehab um, in the future uh, and brings uh, back with her a nefarious uh, woman who's going to create problems in the OC. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I think the issue with Oliver for, from a fan perspective was just that we had him in so many episodes. That was when we got our back nine ordered. They didn't order nine. They ordered whatever, 13 or many mm -hmm. more extra episodes because we did yeah. 27 that first mm -hmm. year, which is virtually as many episodes as you can do without having two crews shooting at one time. Um, and if Oliver had shown up as he did in this episode as a tease and then the next episode... Uh, he seems nice, but like some one of the characters has wind that he's not nice. And then in the next episode, uh, they tell somebody and now, you know, they're in the third episode, Oliver is vanquished. That would be like a great little guest arc. Um, but the fact that we had so many episodes, um, <laughs> it, it put, I think it put a strain on the audience um, just having to have that so many versions of that story and it kind of took a long time for the characters to cotton on to what he was up to. But I think Taylor Hanley did such a good job with the embodying that character. And it was really fun to have somebody who was that kind of charismatic sociopath in the world that we had kind of set up with these kids who were, you know, they were privileged and they, 
Um, but they were ultimately pretty naive. <laughs> like they didn't know a lot about the world. Um, and it was fun to watch them uh, kind of get manipulated by this guy. We had some questions from people w- uh, about Oliver. Did he actually, did his parents actually own the penthouse? <laughs> I remember we didn't know that. that. It was like, there was Josh some didn't know things. either. Yeah, Josh okay. Like, so I then maybe they did, or was that an Oliver lie? Yeah. Right, right, right. I don't, I don't remember. Up for interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> but well, the end of the episode is really, really sweet. After all is said and done with Ryan and Seth and the stalking. <laughs> yeah. And, that was kind and of the like, Christmas card. Yeah. The point of the, the, the whole episode is driving to this idea of like, can Ryan let go of the past, which mm-hmm. uh, requires letting go of the past, but also letting go of Marissa to some degree because he's, you know, repeating behaviors that have, you know, ma- made his life really heavy in the past. And Sandy kind of giving him permission to just be like, don't go, you know, mm-hmm. be with us. This is your holiday. She doesn't, you know, she's got a family and we're your family and this day is for you. Um, and the sweetness of kind of like, Ryan, you know, Ben did a great job of just sort of like trotting out and like kind of hiding the stocking and like sticking it on and then just like quickly darting out of the room and the family's all just like, yes, we got him. (laughs) And then that Uh uh, holiday card, the Christmas card that became so iconic at the end of the show, again, something Mm -hmm. that we wouldn't normally do and with like a image on screen like that, but it felt perfect for the episode. Absolutely. It's so sweet, that Christmas card. I think it was the perfect button, if I do say so myself. Well, that <laughs> was the episode of Chrismica. And Stephanie, we've got some quiz questions for you. I will you'll do my interested. best. <laughs> I'm nervous. What five items are in the Seth Cohen starter pack? Oh boy. Death cap for cutie, bright eyes, goonies. There's two more things. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a hint, comic one's book? One's a book. A book. Oh, Cavalier and Clay. Mm-hmm. And one more band. What's the, <laughs> what's the genre of the last thing? Band. Indie. <laughs> Death Cab, Bright Eyes. I don't remember. Uh, it rhymes with chins. The chins! <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although, you know, thinking about it, Brody, maybe Goonies would have been the movie Rad, the BMX movie. (laughs) That may have been the swap out if Brody actually. Josh is definitely a huge Goonies fan. Yes, absolutely. Oh, speaking of music, were you as into the music? I mean, as obviously Josh and did you have a lot of influence on the music as well? Working on this show actually made me fall in love. And a lot of the... um, like vintage tracks of the show came from me. Like Mazzy Star was like my suggestion in the pilot. Cause I mean, that's a song that I grew up with. Um, mm-hmm. But it actually really made me fall in love with contemporary music in a way that I had kind of given up. Um, and so that mm-hmm. was a really fun working with Alex and Josh and like being like, well, I want to be a part of this too. Like if this is what you guys are listening to, you know, I'm listening to it also. And like then finding my own things and bringing those in and, um, forcing poor Matt Ramsey to like put, you know, 14 songs to picture before we could pick the one that we wanted. And of course the one we wanted was always, you know, not available or, you know, too expensive. And then we'd have to fight for it. Um, 
but yeah, it was a it was a huge part of the show. We made a, a Chris Mika CD, which I think yes, we just three on Amazon. Oh no, there was yeah. yeah. Oh, Chris Mika, yeah. Which a yeah. lot of the songs from this episode um, are in. We're on. Didn't we record? Didn't we record a Christmas song, or was it just a song? McGee had the cast. Yeah, it was just a song. It okay. was like a, a "Welcome to California" kind of song. If we could find that track, that would be, yeah. Yes, he should. Well, I think he is gonna an archaeological artifact to be sure. Oh gosh. <laughs> There's okay. There's another question, and I'm going to ask this one. I'm kind of skipping down, Mindy, because it's fun. Uh, what movie does Sandy want to watch? Sandy, what movie does Sandy want to watch in this episode? He wants to watch um, the thumb wrestling Sylvester Stallone <laughs> movie that is called. What's it called? How can I forget? It's called Over the Top. Over the Top. Uh, that is, really that is definitely a Brody influence, right? Isn't that a Brody influence? Mm, that might be a Josh influence because I will tell you that the name of a character in Over the Top is Lincoln Hawk, which became the name of Rufus Humphrey's band in Gossip Girl. Oh. Huh. Okay. So I just remember that movie prominently being <laughs> talked about. And it could have been Josh or Brody, you know, interchangeable, like I, you know, <laughs> as we know. I have a question that I've um, been thinking about for months and I've just, I'm very curious if there is a process or is it a very simple process of coming up with the title of each script? Um, It's not simple. There is a process. Obviously every episode of Mm -hmm. the OC had a the in front of it. Um, And same with, you know, friends did like the one about whatever. Um, And then (laughs) I think, at first we tried to give them like quite a bit of like thought and like profundity that like the episode called the Heights was like about the development, the Heights, but also Ryan had a fear of Heights and then he had to go on the Ferris wheel with Marissa. And so, you know, something like that, that feels like actually a good title So I think when, you know, in later episodes, I remember Josh and I wrote the summer bummer. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> It was just a bummer. It happened to summer. So, you know, that's what we call it. We felt, we felt a little freer by the time we got into like episode 70, 80, 90. Um, <laughs> the summer bummer. <laughs> that's good. I thought that was interesting because I noticed, for instance, when we in, uh, interviewed um, Deborah J. Fisher, that a lot of her shows had similar themes. Do you use that in your, in your new shows? Do you, do you try to make the titles a theme? Yeah, on Gossip Girl, all the titles are um, kind of puns on uh, movies. So, or like classic movies where one word will be different or um, something's changed. Uh, like what? Can you think like, of <laughs> Like, Never Been Kissed became Never Been Marcus because uh, Blair started <laughs> seeing a guy named Marcus. Um, <laughs> That's cute. But it was uh, a, thin, a thin line. Between love and hate became a thin line between Chuck and Nate. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. I like, so, I like yeah. I'm a big pun fan. Yeah. Fan. yeah I, pun fan. I like things punny. A pun uh, well, or a theme or something that's that feels like it's pulling together different aspects mm-hmm. of the show. So Yeah. Well, <laughs> let's listen to some voicemails from some fans and answer some <laughs> questions. Hi, it's Paula from Canada. 
if Stephanie Savage was a character on the OC in high school, who would she be? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, maybe my cousin. <laughs> was it? <laughs> if it's not, hello, my cousin Paula from Canada. Um, I was definitely, when I was in high school, um, probably like an Anna and Marissa um, combo of like uh, Anna in my taste and kind of expression, but Marissa in my, in my inner being. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Mindy. My name is Rachel and I am listening from Ontario, Canada. In this episode, Seth creates these Seth Cohen starter packs and gives them to Anna and Summer. And then eventually they make their way to Sandy and Kirsten. But my question for you is if you were to create a Summer Roberts or Julie Cooper starter pack, what would they include and who would you give them to? <laughs> That's a great question. I know. Steph, you can, maybe you can help me <laughs> with Summer. Well, it would include a, um, a subscription to like a, a tanning bed. <laughs> gloss. Um, For sure. A, 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 a novel that was like surprising that it was some, one of Summer's favorites. Like about She's like Fountainhead. Novel. Yeah. <laughs> um, some gossip magazines. Mm-hmm. A DVD of the Valley, right? <laughs> That'd be you know what movie <laughs> I think that Summer would have loved, but maybe this is too old because I'm older. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but the movie with Kirstie yeah. Swanson, yeah. like I feel like that would be. I don't know. That's maybe that's just because yeah. I loved that movie. That's my little addition, but you did it perfectly. <laughs> I thought. Um, well, I thought Julie Starter Pack should include Bob Seger. Yeah. Poison. <laughs> Duran Duran. Then I thought, because I was thinking currently, Fifty Shades of Grey, all of the books, and, and <laughs> Devil Wears Prada as a film. <laughs> but then I thought, she loves Evita. She stands on the balcony <laughs> and she's like, look, because there was, I'm one of those actors that will steal things. Like, what, what am I doing in this scene? And I literally thought, do you remember, there was a scene in Caleb's big mansion mm-hmm. where I was on a balcony yeah, talking to people like, and, and I, I did the costume and the hair. I, I was channeling Evita <sighs> with the hair. And I remember thinking, yep, that's what Julie aspires to be. That's beautiful. <laughs> I, that. um, I might also throw in the porn identity. Uh. <laughs> yeah, obviously <laughs> that's the opener. You start she's with that. She's actually the, she's the CEO of Pornhub right yeah. now. I mean, (laughs) but this show launched the careers and what we're experiencing during this podcast, but launched the careers of so many people, not just actors, but writers, crew members, and it has had such an impact and it's just such a pleasure to get to revisit it and reconnect with you and have these conversations. We wouldn't be doing this medium or having these conversations without this medium. So it's been so lovely to catch up and congrats on the newest Gossip Girl and all of your success. And everybody's going to tune in and I'm excited. I'm excited to watch it. Thank you so much, guys. This was super fun. It was really fun to rewatch the episodes and then um, (laughs) chat with you. Thanks so much, Steph. All right. It was really fun. Bye. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. 
follow, rate, and review Welcome to the OC Bitches wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to watch us, check it out on YouTube. When Shopify says you can sell anywhere, oh, they mean it. Ooh, hold up. Just got a new sale. Whoa, Shopify doesn't mind if you're at sea level. Or on top of the world! Whether you're selling carabiners or crop tops, start selling with Shopify today and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash podcast 22. Shopify.com slash podcast 22. Hi, everyone. It's Rabia Chaudhry. And I'm Ellen Marsh. And we have a new podcast called Rabia and Ellen Solve, Solve the, case. the Case. As you know, I am a very smart lawyer. You are. You're so well-respected in the entire world. You know everything. Thank you so much. And as you know, I'm a famous Broadway star. Gorgeous. I sing like a nightingale. Well, yes. at least that's what your mom says. <laughs> Just kidding. This is Ellen Marsh. And, and I'm Rabia. Rabia but we are teaming up to bring you a show like you have never heard before. True crime meets talk show. Nobody's done it. We're going to do it. We're going to do the impossible. And it's the two things that I love. Ellen, I think you'll like it too. What? True crime and talking? Yeah. I'm there. Every other week, we will have a guest talking about whatever true crime case they are obsessed with. We have a list. Everything from... The Lacey Peterson murder. Yeah, some of the most famous cases you've ever heard of, obviously, like John Benet Ramsey, The West Memphis Three, Chris Watts, Khalif Browder, Elisa Lamb, Madeline McCain, Sandra Bland, The Springfield Three. The list goes on and on. But they are all cases that you know, and we are going to dive in deep with someone else and just talk about them. No. We're going to solve the case, Ellen. That's right. We're going to solve the case. So subscribe to Rabia and Ellen Solve the Case wherever you get your podcasts.